This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come warm yourself by the fire. Oh, it's nice. Feel the flames. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Hey, we, uh, you know, we've they've done a nice job here in the uh, the Zoomer Radio Studio decorating for the uh, the festive season, for Christmas and Hanukkah. Can um, uh, can we show our viewers on the YouTube live stream the wonderful decorations here in studio? Are we able to do that, Ryan? Look at that! Isn't that beautiful? And I'll tell you, the uh, down the hall in the uh, the FM studio, and uh, across the uh, the way there in the ma- in master uh, control where. Uh, George Genescu, Dr. George, my uh, predecessor who hosts the show before mine, Big Band Sunday Night, hosts his show. Just festive and beautiful. I've never seen it like this. This is absolutely extraordinary. And if you're not on the YouTube stream, shame on you. Uh, If you were, you could see all of this festive splendor, but it's real easy. Just uh, go to the uh, YouTube channel, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, and hit the sub button. And there you are. You can watch the radio every uh, every week. We, uh, incidentally, please do hit that sub button. We're trying to get to 7,000 subscribers by the end of 2017. And uh, where are we now, Albert? We're around, uh, or uh, Ryan, I think we're around, what? It's 6,281. Almost 6,300. Mm-hmm. On the cusp of 6,300. All right. I think we can get to 7,000 if we all pull up our socks and hit that red sub button, right? All right, let's, please. Uh, just moments away from my uh, conversation with retired firefighter Mark Taylor. What an extraordinary gentleman and an extraordinary story. Back in 2011, in the middle of, the, uh, in a, in the middle of a most debilitating sickness, Mark reser- received what turned out to be prophetic visions uh, regarding the 2016 presidential election. The astonishing true story of the man who saw tomorrow and what he says is coming next. That's just moments away. Uh, In hour two, the UFO landing at Socorro, New Mexico back in 1964 
Uh, it's been wrapped in controversy almost from the moment uh, that police officer Lonnie Zamoa watched a craft descend and land. Uh, Zamoa saw alien beings near the craft and a symbol on its side, but he was told that he shouldn't mention either. It's called Encounter in the Desert. It's a new book by ufologist Kevin Randall. What a veteran. 45 years a researcher in the ufology um, uh, arena, if you will, former Vietnam helicopter pilot, and he uh, will reveal um, what exactly Zamoa saw in that arroyo back in 1964 and what an examination of the landing revealed to investigators. Kevin Randall, Hour 2, Encounter in the Desert, the case for alien contact at Sakaro. You know, we've never talked about the Sakaro uh, UFO incident on this program, so it is high time we do that. Uh, before we get to all of that, let me, as per usual, introduce the boys in the band. Now, tonight, sitting in on the Flying V Gibson guitar, because a young Ian Robertson, my fine rockabilly friend, is out on the left coast in La La Land, Los Angeles, recording an album. How exciting is that? We are, we are just absolutely thrilled uh, for Ian. Uh, but we're also thrilled to have uh, this fine young man. Uh, he's been with us before, and he's back with us again. Sebastian Hearn, my technical producer my, uh, this fine evening. Uh, and then here in studio, on the other side of the glass, my good um, story producer, enigmatic, although he is, idiosyncratic, some might say, on the Rickenbacker bass guitar, occasionally the theremin. Albert Vinzel. And finally, but uh, not lastly, on the uh, Hammond B3. That's an organ, Albert, if you didn't didn't know. That's an organ. The Hammond B3 uh, feature producer and live YouTube stream producer, Ryan White. Wow. Let's get to the meat, shall we? The Christmas roast beast, as it were. Uh, Back in November of 2016, the world witnessed the impossible. Every update pointed to a loss for the Republican Party, but when the map of the states flipped red in the final hour, there was a select few who weren't surprised. They'd always known Donald J. Trump was going to win. He was chosen for such a time as this. The prophecy had said so. The prophecy had said so. This prophet, um, this reserved man of God, was retired fighter fighter Mark Taylor. The word given by the Holy Spirit was delivered on April the 28th, 2011, again in the middle of the uh, the most debilitating sickness, when the prophecy later fell into the hands of New York Times bestsellers Don and Mary Colbert. God used this new team of passionate individuals to lead the nation into a fervent prayer chain that would accomplish one of the most incredible miracles the U.S. has ever seen. But Trump's victory was only the beginning. What is coming next for the most powerful nation on earth today? Mark Taylor has more to say. Mark Taylor, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Oh, thank you for having me, brother. I'm doing well. It's an honor to be here. What a, what a, uh, a firestorm uh, you created. Um, but take us back, uh, of course, April 28, 2011. Set the stage for us. You were, um, you were uh, very, very ill. What happened? Well, I retired. I did 20 years on the job with the City of Orlando Fire Department, and I retired out in 2006 as a lieutenant. And uh, about a month after I retired, I had a visitation from the Lord. And in that visitation, the Lord had shown me that I was there was going to be some things that I was going to write that would affect my walk and the walks of others. 
And about five months after that, I just started getting sick. I just started going downhill. And I went to doctor after doctor. Nobody could figure out what was wrong with me. I had severe depression, anxiety. Uh, I couldn't eat for four or five days at a time. I couldn't, uh, um, I, was, I was better ready for four or five days at a time. I mean, I lost all kinds of weight. Uh, but nobody could figure out what was going on. This went on for like four or five years. And then I finally found the first doctor, a uh, Christian doctor I went to, and he told me that I was suffering from a very low thyroid. I had severe adrenal burnout from the fire service, and I had uh, the hormones of a 70-year-old at 39. So in 2011, um, I was still sick at the time, and um, I'm sitting in front of the TV watching Fox News, and I, I didn't know a whole lot about Donald Trump. I just knew he was a very powerful businessman who had built this empire. And so I just I knew limited details about him. And so he was toying with the idea of running, but he never announced he was going to run. No, it was an exploratory at best. <clears throat> Correct. And um, so I'm sitting in front of the TV listening to him, and then all of a sudden I heard the Holy Spirit say, you're hearing the voice of a president. So I got up, and I came in here to, into my spare bedroom here, which I made into an office, which I'm at now. I sat down. I put pen to paper like the Apostle Paul did, and I just started writing what the Holy Spirit was telling me. And that was April 28, 2011. Now, I originally had thought that it was supposed to be for 2012, because there's two other things that go with this. There was The second thing was I wrote about two or three months later, I wrote another prophecy called the Great Horse, and that God said that there was another Triple Crown winner coming, and it would be a sign that it would be the time for God's people to break out. And so I wrote that, I put it aside, and then I wrote a third thing that uh, the Lord told me to go back and rewrite General Eisenhower's D-Day speech, and I want you, he said, I want you to address it to my army. I said, okay, Lord. So I did that. And I put all these things aside, thinking that it was for 2012. Well, 2012 came and went. Donald Trump never announced he was running. So I thought I had really missed all this stuff. So fast forward to 2015, because at the time, I didn't have a platform. I didn't have any friends, because I was isolated in my house for like 10 years with this illness that I've been dealing with. Right. And so uh, fast forward to 2015, all of a sudden, you know, I kept track of the triple crown races and this that and the other especially 2012 because i knew there was one coming i just didn't i thought it was 2012 so 2015 june 6th uh we get a triple crown winner and Mm. i'm on the phone with my sister and she says wait a minute what is today i said man it's d-day and i heard Mm. the lord say release the speech so i pulled the speech out i pulled the horse prophecy out those two things came to pass in, in those in that same day 10 days later june 15th donald trump announces he was running so i pulled the prophecy out with donald trump and I said, Lord, I said, I thought I had missed all of this stuff. I thought it was for 2012. He said, Mark, he said, all of this stuff was supposed to go down in 2012. But he said, my people were not ready. They needed another four years of Obama and this garbage to get a righteous anger to rise up and say, enough is enough. He said, so I held it off. So that's what happened. And if you notice in, in the Trump prophecy, it says when Donald Trump announces that he's running, it'll be like the shot heard around the world. Well, that's kind of the sentence that sets the prophecy in motion. He never announced in 2012. So it wasn't until June 15th, 2015, that he announced. That set the prophecy in motion right there. Interesting. The the, uh, Eisenhower speech regarding, we all call it D-Day, but it's in fact called, it's Operation Overlord. Right. Uh, Just a, a, a slight uh, departure here. Here, my um, my father was scheduled to partake in the um, in the D-Day landings. Uh, in a training exercise, he had twisted his ankle, jumping off a moving vehicle as part of the training, and um, subsequently missed the D-Day landing. Otherwise, 
you know, we, we know the slaughter that took place on Juno Beach, etc. I may not be here had he not twisted his ankle. Anyway, right. that's a real departure. So the, the landing at the, um, the, the, uh, the D-Day speech, why is that significant? Well, it's significant. There's a whole World War II component to this whole thing that's going on right now, basically because, you know, we had the New World Order rose its ugly head in World War I. We beat them back. It rose again in World War II. We beat them back again. It's rising its ugly head again. We will beat them back again. Uh, it's not time for that to, to take place, this New World Order. And so this is why this whole World War II thing is, is going on right now, because the Lord has shown me, um, because you've also got the Fourth Reich that's rising called ISIS that I prophesied that the Lord gave me a prophetic word on, that, you know, the same thing that happened in World War II would happen here again, that Russia would come in from the east, and uh, the United States and her allies would come in from the west, and they would defeat this Fourth Reich called ISIS. The same thing that happened in World War II. Russia came in from the east, we came in from the west, and we defeated the Nazis. So you're seeing this World War II component take place. And it's also a, a significance of the D-Day landing as to where the body of Christ is at right now. <clears throat> Excuse me. The Lord was showing me that... Um, You've got the body of Christ and the army of God, and they're two totally different different things. Think of the body of Christ basically as a training camp, boot camp, basically. And the army of God are the mature, spiritually mature. But the Lord was telling me, he says, if you go back to D-Day on those ships, you had those guys were on those ships for three days. They were seasick. And that's where the majority of the body of Christ is at right now. They're on these ships. They're being tossed about to and fro. All they can focus on is the storm. And they're seasick. They're being tossed about to and fro. Then you've got another group who have been promoted out of the ships and into the landing craft, and they're approaching the beach. Now, anybody that knows any history about uh, D-Day landing, they had obstacles on the beach to keep the armor from landing. Well, you've got this group that are approaching the beach. They see the obstacles. That's all they can focus on are the obstacles right now. So they're not quite where they need to be mature-wise, spiritually. Then you've got the third group, which is the Army of God. They're the ones that don't focus on the storms. They don't focus on the obstacles. They focus on the mission. And that is to take ground for the kingdom of God and hold it at all costs. So they are hitting the beaches, they are driving inland, and they're taking ground for the kingdom of God and holding it at all costs. So this is where this whole World War II component thing starts begins to come into play here. Mark Taylor is my guest. Retired firefighter, received a prophetic vision back in 2011 about the 2016 presidential election. It's all detailed in the Trump Prophecies. The astonishing true story of the man who saw tomorrow and what he says is coming next. Stay with us here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Peering into the shadows, where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. PIN numbers, passcodes, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are... Here's two more numbers, 416-360-0740, or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. 
Welcome back. Mark Taylor, retired firefighter, prophet, back in 2011 in the midst of a grave illness related to his uh, work as a firefighter. He received a prophetic vision from the Lord, and it was uh, rather interesting. One, he was told to, to rewrite the uh, General Eisenhower's speech, which was delivered at the, uh, the D-Day landings. That was June the 6th, 1945, originally. And he was also told that there would be a Triple Crown winner coming. Uh, and he was also told, of course, that Donald Trump would be the next president of the United States. Well, it didn't happen in 2012, uh, but it did happen. Well, in 2015, what happened? In 2015, we had, of course, uh, a Triple Crown winner, American Pharaoh. We also had, on that uh, same day, that was the anniversary of the D-Day landings, so June 6, 2015, and uh, the... Announcement that Trump was running for president. When did that happen, Mark? It was June fifteenth of that same year, about June, ten days later. June fifteenth. Now, uh, the what is the significance of the Triple Crown winner in all of this? Rather interesting to throw that into the prophecy. Yes, because um, that was a separate prophecy that I'd written uh, about three months after I wrote the Trump prophecy, and basically the Triple Crown winner would be a sign for the church that or God's people to, that they would break out. It would be time for them to break out. Now, the Lord told me, I said, because, you know, I said, Lord, I said, I thought this was supposed to happen in 2012. And of course, you know, we talked about that in the last segment. He said, I want you to go back and I want you to research who the horse was in 2012. Because if you remember correctly, in 2012, there was one slated to win the Triple Crown winner that year, but it got hurt after the second race, and it didn't go to the third race. So I went back and I researched it, and I researched the name, and the name was I'll Have Another. I thought it sounded strange. I thought, well, thought I meant, I'll have another drink. And the Lord said, no, I'll have another one coming because my people were not ready yet. So the Lord prolonged all of this. So that's why it was it, it, 2012 came and went. And then uh, the, the people had to rise up and say enough is enough on November 8th. And then, of course, Donald Trump, we know the outcome of that. So Now, uh, were any of these uh, prophecies that you received, were they published anywhere prior to them actually coming true? No, I didn't. Again, I was in isolation. I mean, I've been vetted for these things. I, I handed them out to a couple of friends and some families, and then my doctor, of course, that's where Dr. Colbert comes in. Yes. And, and Mary Colbert comes in, and then because my first doctor had closed his practice, and then um, I had fi- had to find another doctor, which was, of course, Dr. Colbert, and I went to him one day because um, I knew he was an evangelical. I didn't have a platform. I just took him some prophetic words, and I had him in a folder when I went in there on, on one of my um, uh, physicals that I was going there with him on, and. I handed him the folder. He thought it was signs and symptoms that I was handing him, and he kind of put them on the counter for a minute <clears throat> as we were talking. So as he was checking me out, he started prophesying over me. And he started prophesying that basically, he says, Mark, he says, I feel like the Spirit of God saying that you're going to wake up one day, and you're going to start writing prophetic words. God's just going to download these words to you, and you're going to start writing these words out. I said, well, Doc, I've already started. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, those are the prophetic words right there in the folder I handed you. He says, I thought those were signs and symptoms. I said, no. And that was the Trump prophecy was one of those prophecies I handed him. So he, he took the prophecy, and he read it, and then uh, he was intrigued by the prophecy, and he took it to his wife, Mary. And because uh, they get tons of stuff. I mean, he's, he, he, he treats all the big evangelicals uh, that are out there, you know, a lot of television ministries, stuff like that. 
And um, so they get a lot of stuff. So he took it to Mary, and he says, I want you to read this prophecy that God gave Mark. So she read it, and Mary calls it the rhythm of God, basically, because she's been a student of the Bible for over 30 years, and God's Word has a rhythm to it. And so when she read it, she heard that rhythm. And so she knew that it was from the Spirit of God, that it didn't come from man. It came from the Spirit of God. So she came out of the office, and, and I didn't had never met Mary before at that time. I mean, this is like, what, three years ago. And uh, she says, Mark, she says, do you realize that, you know, this is a, a word from God? And I said, well, I think it is. And she says, yes, it is. And she says, uh, do you mind if I share this with some people? And I said, sure, go right ahead. You're free to do whatever you want. And this kind of took off from there. And, and so— um... For those thinking, all right, is there corroborating evidence? Is there that these prophecies took place prior to the election of Trump? Uh, and they'll want to know, is it in, in writing anywhere? So when did Don and Mary Col- Colbert publish or, or at least start talking about your prophecies? It was way before the elections. It was before anybody even announced they were even running for, for president. So they had it in their hands way before the election. Um, I, what the exact date is, that I, part I don't know. Um, but th- I have been vetted by uh, from pastors from Jer- all the way from Jerusalem, actually, uh, called and, and talked to my previous doctor that I had, that I actually gave him that prophecy in 2011, uh, and another friend of mine as well. So I do have a, a trail, per se, that people can vet me on, and, you know, it, it's all credible. Mark Taylor is uh, my guest. It's called The Trump Prophecies, the astonishing true story of the man who saw tomorrow and what he says is coming next. So, uh, election night, what was going through your mind as you saw all of these, you know, the the wall of blue states? There was like so, yeah. something like 18 of them, and, and there were right. certain ones that had to flip red. It didn't look likely, you know, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Florida, Ohio, they all flip red. What's right. going through your mind as you're as you're seeing this happen, well, beyond you know, all odds? Yeah, you know, again, it's all odds, man. I mean, you had the news media that was out there; they were saying, "Oh, there's no way Trump's going to win." You know, all the pundits and their polls were out there saying, "There's no way he's going to win." And you know, when election night first started, when the when the polls began to come in, I mean, it wasn't looking too good in the beginning, and it wasn't until Florida fell and switched red that everything started to fall into place. So it's it's just amazing how God works. And uh, so, I mean, me and my wife were sitting in bed, and, you know, I just said, look, I, all I can go by is what God was telling me. That's all I can go by. And I just got to have faith that God's going to do what he said he was going to do. And sure enough, I mean, when, when the announcement came that he had, had won it, I mean, it was probably the most humbling experience that I can say that, I, that I've had. Because, I mean, it was just, I was in tears, my wife was in tears, and I mean, because I knew at that point, that God was going to turn America around at that point. You know, God's not done with America. That's the problem. Everybody thinks God's done with America. America's under judgment. America's not under judgment. It's the systems that are under judgment, like illegal immigration systems, our banking systems, uh, you know, the judicial system. All these systems are under judgment right now. That's why you're seeing all this corruption come to the surface, because God himself is exposing it and is going to clean it out. Mark, a lot of people listening who have a major hate on for the 45th president. Some have yes. called it, uh, you know, <clears throat> um, almost a mania, an hysteria, against, the anger against Trump. Right. And even among, I mean, his most fervent supporters uh, have not been happy with some of the decisions he's made. But what do you say to those out there who don't see Trump as a great deliverer? Uh, they see Trump as 
almost, you know, the great Satan. What do you say to them? You know, he, he's not the deliverer. You know, we only have one deliverer, and that's Jesus Christ, period. Um, but God can use any person he chooses. You know, during the election, I heard a lot where people were saying, oh, you know, he's not Christ-like. You know, why are there any evangelicals voting for him? You know, he calls people names. Well, you got to go back and read your Bible, because even the Lord himself called people names. I mean, he called them hypocrites. He called them brood of vipers. You know, no man is perfect. There was only one man that walked the earth that was perfect, and that was the Lord himself. So we are imperfect people, but God can choose to use anybody he wants. You know, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. We don't understand God's plan sometimes. But we just have to roll with it and just have faith. That, believe me, that our creator knows more than we do. So he chose Donald Trump for such a time as this. He is anointed and appointed by God. And it may be that I don't even agree with some of the stuff that he may do sometimes, or, you know, I don't understand some of the stuff that it may come to that at some point. You know, at this point, I think he's been doing a great job. But at this point, you know, we need someone in there that has true leadership because the last five presidents, we haven't had true leadership since Reagan. The last five presidents we've had in there right now have been told what to do, been told what to say, you know, by a shadow government. That's why they're fighting this man so hard is because he is true leadership in its purest form. He doesn't take orders from the shadow government. So he's leading by example. So there's a lot to this that people have to understand um, that, you know, there's a new world order that it was trying to establish itself, and it's kicking and screaming because we cut the head off that snake November 8th when Donald Trump won. So they're doing everything in their power to try to remove him, which will not work, by the way. He will not be assassinated. He will not be impeached. Not one hair will be harmed on that man's head or his family. He will serve this term, and he will serve a second term, I believe, another four years as well. You know, it's uh, it's interesting that uh, some have talked about, you know, as you say, Mark, that that God chooses whom he will to to do his bidding. And they go back to the Old Testament. King David, for example, was, right. you know, was <laughs> uh, not a perfect man. He right. um, he was an adulterer. In fact, he had uh, his mistress's husband killed. That's right. Um, uh, so King David was not a great man. Uh, I recently had Doc, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Kahn on the program uh, talking about his book, The Paradigm, and he um, he goes back to the Old Testament uh, comparing Donald Trump to a figure that opposed Jezebel in the northern kingdom of Israel. He was called the warrior. Ahab. Uh, well, he was opposing Ahab, but the yeah. warrior the warrior sounds a lot, an awful lot like Donald Trump. He was a, a political outsider who was rude and crude Right. And, um, you know, not someone you would think would be doing God's bidding, but but the warrior, this figure, um, uh, and his name escapes me, Jehu, I think is something like that. Jehu. Jehu. Yes, defeated Jezebel, who sounds all the world like Hillary Clinton, ended yeah. the dynasty of uh, Ahab and his uh, ancestors. What, have you read Khan's uh, book, The Paradigm? What do you think of that analogy that Trump is the warrior from the Old Testament? I have not read uh, uh, Rabbi's book. Um, I do have it, but I just haven't had a chance to read it. Um, you know, I, it, it's it's astonishing. I mean, you know, again, there's no coincidences with God. I mean, you know, God is, I mean, just just take the horse race thing, for instance. You know what I mean? It, it happened on D-Day. It matched up with the D-Day speech. It was a sign that, hey, this is all coming to pass right now. So, I mean, God works in mysterious ways. Again, we don't know his ways. We don't know his thoughts. Uh, you know, our thoughts are not his thoughts. Or our ways are not his ways. So, I mean, it, it's very... To me, it's exciting to see God work in this capacity, you know, whether it's this, whether it's the paradigm, uh, whatever the case may be. 
you know, God works in mysterious ways, and it's exciting to sit back and see what God is doing right now. He is the one who's going to deliver America. Not Donald Trump, not man, but he uses man to do his work a lot of times. So it's up to us to engage the enemy uh, from a spiritual standpoint and take that ground back and hold it for the kingdom of God. We'll hold it at all costs. You know, this, this is a part where we're taking back our country. This is not a fight just for America. This is a fight for the entire earth right now. And this is where the army of God is going to rise up and shine in this hour right now. You're going to see souls come into the kingdom of God like we've never seen in the history of mankind. It's about to break forth right now. Trump has certainly courted evangelicals. Uh, he's, he's courted, you know, Catholics. Uh, again, going back to uh, Rabbi Kahn's book, The Warrior Courted. Uh, you know, religious groups in the northern uh, kingdom of Israel at a time when they were, you know, certainly worshiping Baal and, and uh, were, were, were moving right. away from a monotheistic um, religion. Uh, is, is, in your, is Trump, in your estimation, moving towards becoming uh, um, an ardent believer himself? I mean, certainly he says the right things a lot of the times. He doesn't always act like a Christian. But... Um, what is your sense? Is is Trump on the ver- he's been described as a baby Christian by some evangelicals, like right. a, a newbie? But what is your what is your sense of of Trump in ser- in terms of his spiritual journey? Well, my co-author Mary Colbert, she sits on his spiritual advisory board. Him and uh, her and Doctor Don. So I know for a fact that he is in fact a Christian um, because uh, you know he, he they talk about it all the time. They he actually let me let me put it to the listeners this way. He actually told his spiritual advisory board that he wants to be known as the most praying president in history. That's what he wants to leave as his legacy. Now, how many presidents in the past have ever really said that and really acted on it? I don't know if anybody else has really had so much as a so-called spiritual advisory board. I mean, it may have been for smoke and mirrors type thing, but this is the real deal because I know some of the people that sit on that spiritual advisory board. So, I mean, he, he's got people, he's surrounding himself with Christians. Uh, you know, he, he's, he's doing things to, you know, like the abortion issues, uh, you know, the attacks against the Christians. He's standing up for the Christians. You know, he's bringing back Merry Christmas. He, you know, all these things he's doing right now, the evangelicals need to take notice that God is, in fact, using this man. His hand is upon him. Wouldn't you like, though, to see more repentance on the part of the president in terms of, you know, let's face it, um, he can be a bit of a bully, and he is a disruptor, certainly. And again, we go back to God uses men in mysterious ways and so forth. That's right. But I don't know. For me, uh, I'd like to see Trump be a little more repentant. Maybe in his, I don't know, in his tweets, say, you know, I'm sorry if I've hurt people or what have you. What do you let me leave that as sort of a, um, let's leave that question hanging. When we come back, I'll get you to, to address that. Mark Taylor author of The Trump Prophecies, The Astonishing True Story of the Man Who Saw Tomorrow, and what he says is coming next, and we will discuss discuss what's coming next, next on The Conspiracy Show. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. 
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Just a reminder, coming up after the top of the hour, Kevin Randall, longtime ufologist, 45 years in this arena, and uh, his new book, Encounter in the Desert, The Case for Alien Contact at Socorro. That was back in New Mexico, 1964, the, uh, the landing of a, uh, an, what appeared to be an alien spacecraft and alien beings, uh, according to the testimony, eyewitness testimony of a police officer. Uh, and... Um, that was um, Lonnie Zamora. Anyway, we'll uh, discuss that with Kevin Randall again at the top of the hour. Right now, Mark Taylor stays with us. Retired firefighter back in 2011 had a prophetic uh, vision from the Lord, he says. It's all documented in uh, his book with uh, co-author Mary Colbert. The Trump Prophecies, the astonishing true story of the man who saw tomorrow and what he says is coming next. So uh, before we get on to you know, other prophecies and what is coming next. Let me just ask you about, um, you know, if Trump is a Christian, and uh, I, I hope he is, I, I am, not a very good one, but I'm hoping Trump is. And um, But, you know, a lot of people look at his behavior, they look at his tweets and so forth. Uh, if he is, in fact, in fact, a Christian, should that be reflected in the way he's treating other people at this point and people you know that's a main stumbling block for a lot of people even even other christians that he's just not acting like a christian well let's 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 go back for a minute i mean you know if you go back through history and look at the prophets of old uh, you know um some of these guys were very direct uh they were like a bull in a china shop and so i mean uh, donald trump to me is kind of like a political prophet if you will and, you know, you were talking about repentance earlier. You'd like to see a little bit more of a repentant heart. Yes. You know, you got to look at what this guy's dealing with. He is dealing with some of the most evil people on the face of this earth, period. Hillary Clinton, Obama, all this mess that he's walked into. You know, God chose the right man because it's going to take a bull in a china shop to go in and clean this, this, this stuff up. And that's what you're seeing taking place. Now, I know people are used to seeing of these uh these Christians that are like, you know, ho-hum, you know, and, and they're nice, and this, that, and the other. Turn the other cheek. Turn the other cheek, you know what I mean, this, that, and the other. And it's like, look, you got to understand what he is dealing with right now. And it's going to take a very heavy hand. I was, you know, I was with the fire service for 20 years. I'm a third-generation firefighter, and I was an officer. And, you know, when I would walk into a fire station, I'd be assigned to a new station or whatever the case may be. You know, if depending on what the issues were, depending on how heavy-handed you'd have to be in order to straighten this stuff out. And it takes it's going to take a very heavy hand, which is what Donald Trump has right now, to straighten this country out right now. So that's what you're seeing taking place. It's, it's not the candy-coated Christian, so to speak, or, like you said, turn the other cheek. It's going to take a heavy hand. It's going to take a bull in a china shop, and that's what he is. I, yeah, I think there's a lot of truth in what you say. I, I've often referred to Trump as uh, the third law of Newtonian physics. He is the opposite um, reaction 
that's the opposite and equal reaction to everything that sort of happened beforehand. So the pendulum has swung so far one way, and now it's swinging back the other way, and that swinging back is often tumultuous and somewhat violent at times. Yeah, you know, and, and here's the other thing, too, people have to understand. We've been indoctrinated as people the last five presidents, and that's, what, what 32 years' worth, where they've been told what to say. They've been told to be politically correct. This man's not politically correct. I'm not politically correct. I tell the truth, but I tell it in love, but I'm going to tell you the truth, whether you want to hear it or not, whether they like it or not. And that's the same way Donald Trump is. So I respect someone like that. I would rather have someone tell me the truth versus lie to me and have it harm me later on. So I think what's happening is it's like a culture shock almost, where there's, they've had 32 years of, of the past five presidents being politically correct, and now here comes Donald Trump, who's not politically correct, and they're just not used to it. So I think there's a lot of that going on right now where they're just not used to someone coming out and saying, hey, this is the way it is. This is the truth right here. Mark, after 2011, what, what other prophetic visions or messages from God did you receive? Well, you know, I, I wrote one called Don't Be Deceived, Get in the Fight, October 13, 2015, and it talked about the Clintons, uh, that they were both going to go down for the crimes that they committed, uh, including uh, Obama. Um, then I wrote another one. Uh, November 17th of 2015, called Time is Up for Those Who Are Corrupt, and that uh, God was going to basically take down all of this corruption that's going on in the United States, which we're seeing taking place right now. Um, another one that I wrote uh, was Do Not Fear America. Now, I wrote this February 24th, 2016. The Lord originally started dealing with me about the Supreme Court, and I know this is a hot button for a lot of people right here, the Supreme Court. He originally told me, I, I originally... I heard the Lord telling me it was going to be three Supreme Court justices that was, he was going to replace. And then the Lord came back and said, no, it's going to be five. Five? Said, okay, Lord. Wow. And so when Scalia, because the Lord told me about a month or two before it happened, he said, one's going to die, one's going to retire, and three will be caught in a scandal and have to be removed. Hmm. And so when Scalia, about a month or two later, Scalia died. And I told Mary this ahead of time. And Your co-author, she, Mary Colbert. Yeah, my, my co-author. And so um, I had written this prophecy because everybody was panicking when Scalia died because they knew the Democrats. They knew Obama uh, were wanting to replace a Supreme Court justice before he got out in case something happened. So everybody was in fear. So I, God gave two signs at Scalia's funeral that confirmed that they were not going to get the appointment. So I wrote that prophetic word, um, Do Not Fear America, February 24, 2016. And basically what God was saying was, no, Obama will not appoint another Supreme Court justice. It was being reserved for Donald Trump, and Donald Trump will appoint five. Now, when God reforms the court with five Supreme Court justices, that case called Roe versus Wade would be overturned. Wow. That would be uh, monumental. Yes. Now, that is all somewhat contingent on, obviously, uh, even without the nuclear option— or with the nuclear option, rather, and that is the Senate only needs a, ma a simple majority to confirm Supreme Court nominations. Uh, that means, you know, with the midterms coming up, they're going to have to retain, the Republicans is, uh, that is, they're going to have to retain that majority. Uh, no president, um, well, even Reagan, after his election, he lost, I think, the House, he lost the Senate, Obama the same. It, it, it's, what are you hearing about uh, the midterms then? If, if, if he's going to nominate five Supreme Court justices, that means four more, rather, 
Correct. Uh, and get them and get them approved by the Senate, he's going to have to hold on to that Senate majority. That's, at this point, not looking likely. Well, that's what they said about the election, too. But the, you know, the thing is, is that he's going to serve, serve a second term. So it may not be his, this first term that he gets all five. Right. Good it point. It could be the second term. So, again, you, you have to be careful with the prophetic because we, we think it means one thing when, in fact, all of a sudden when it comes to pass, you go, oh, that's what it meant. See, it's like the, the part in the Trump prophecy talked about Obama serving a third term. And everybody was gigging me on it. And it's like, look, I'm just telling you what the Lord said. And they said, well, you can't do that because of the Constitution. Well, now we're seeing his third term play out because he's got a shadow government. He's trying to dethrone Donald Trump. And he's operating, what, two miles from the White House? There you go. On the so, uh, so taxpayer's we dime always, as well. You know, we, we don't always think, uh, we don't always know what exactly it is. So, um, Mark, i gotta got to jump in here. Hold on. We'll come back. I want to talk to you about something else, and that is the possibility that the U.S. Embassy will be moved to Jerusalem. Some might call that prophetic, monumental. We'll come back. Mark Taylor, The Trump Prophecies, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't you dare go away. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Mark Taylor, my guest, until the top of the hour, the Trump prophecies, the astonishing true story of the man who saw tomorrow and what he says is coming next. I wanted to ask you about, well, this is actually uh, was passed many years ago, uh, I think under George uh, W. Bush, and that is uh, to move the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv, where most of the, um, the world's uh, embassies are in Israel, to Jerusalem. Uh, but the um, presidents have kept delaying and delaying and delaying it, kicking the can down the road. Uh, now comes word that uh, I believe from Vice President Mike Pence that Trump may be the one to actually sign that uh, into law that, or, or, or to sign that executive order that the, the U.S. Embassy in Israel will be moved to Jerusalem. I mean, that could cause tremendous upheaval in the Middle East, some say. What, what can you tell me about that, Mark? Have you received any, any prophetic uh, words about that, or what are your personal thoughts? You know, I haven't received any. Uh, God hasn't really showed me anything on that. I, just, I do know that um, he was talking about moving the embassy to, to Jerusalem, uh, for a while there, and I think the prime minister actually had him hold off on it uh, because because they were worried about it causing problems. Um, I do know they were. I think he's fixing to declare Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. If I'm not mistaken, if I read that correctly on the headlines. So I mean, um, uh, that's that's really about all I know as far as that is concerned. All right. What else uh, is in store uh, in the next several years with Trump in the White House? Um, what else can you tell? What other prophetic visions have you received? Well, I, I wrote a um, prophetic word um, uh, called Energy, Energy, and that was December 16, 2016. 
And basically what the Lord was saying was that uh, America and Israel will be the number one energy producers in the world, um, and they will be energy independent. They will no longer need, uh, need uh, OPEC. They won't need the, the Middle East anymore. And the thing about this is, that this, when I wrote this word, uh, at the time I wrote it, uh, which was, again, December 16, 2016, in the prophecy it talks about these OPEC countries, how they've used their oil money to attack other countries from within. In other words, they were using their money for terrorism. And the Lord, in this prophetic word, said that their wells will go dry and their finances too, and they will actually have to be, be fed by the red, white, and blue. In other words, they will have to come to America and Israel for their energy. And now, we couldn't figure out, uh, you know, when Donald Trump went on his first uh, uh, trip to Saudi Arabia, Yes. Uh, he went there and he made a massive arms deal with Saudi Arabia, or Saudi Arabia made a deal with us. And nobody could figure out why. And... Brother, let me tell you, I was watching, somebody sent me the video from Fox News. I didn't even know this. My mouth dropped when I saw this, heard this. It was Brett Baer. And they were doing a report on why they were doing the arms deal. It was because Saudi Arabia knows their wells are about to go dry. And so their finances would dry up, so they wouldn't have the money to make this purchase. So they're doing it now while they have the money. So that was that was incredible to me. Again, another humbling experience when some of these prophetic words begin to come to pass like that, that these countries, their wells are about to go dry, basically, and Israel and America will be the number one energy producers in the world. Interesting. Interesting. And Israel, a major energy producer, so that yes. would tend to suggest major oil discoveries coming in Israel? Yes, absolutely. Fascinating. Fascinating. Well, we are seeing a major realignment in the Middle East. Uh, yeah. Who would have thought, you know, that, that at least uh, unofficially that Saudi Arabia would be forming an alliance with, with Israel? And that's happening. Yes. What yeah, about absolutely. What about North Korea, um, Mark? Obviously, all eyes on uh, North Korea and their nuclear capabilities. Have you right. received any prophetic visions about that? Because no, that could be the nexus. No, show me anything too much on North Korea. Uh, you know, I just... I just know the United States is going to be protected. God's going to protect the United States and Israel. Interesting. How do you receive these uh, visions? I mean, when you were ill back in 2011, um, I mean, how did it come to you, and how does it come to you now? You know, I've only—I've probably got—you can go to my website. People can—it's swordrescue.com. It's sort of spelled S-O-R-D, rescue.com, and they can pull up all my prophetic words for free. They can download them, you know, read them. I've probably got maybe, I don't know, close to 15 words on there at this point. And, you know, most of these words, I've always sat down and penned out two or three of these words at one sitting, and Trump Prophecy was one of them. And, but the rest of them, they take me sometimes a couple of weeks, two or three weeks. Sometimes it takes me a couple of months to pen some of these prophecies out. And I'll just, I'll just meditate on stuff, and the Lord starts downloading stuff to me, and I'll just start taking notes almost. And this will go on for two or three weeks. And, you know, in the Bible it talks about uh, the prophet Jeremiah where he said that it, it burned in his bones, and it, he had to get the word out because it, just, it was like a fire in his bones, so to speak. Right. For me, it's not that. For me, it's like a pressure that, that builds up. And so I'll, I'll start taking notes for like a couple of weeks or so, and these bullet points that God will give me. And then this pressure begins to build. And when I can't take it anymore, I know it's time to sit down and start writing it out. And I'll start writing it out, what the Lord's telling me. And then I'll move sentences around where it starts begins to flow. And then when I type it out, the Lord will change things. He'll say, no, move this one here or that there. It's just, it's just everybody hears differently, you know what I mean? And I'm just one of those type of guys. I just, I just I take notes, 
this pressure begins to build, and it just the Lord just starts filling in the blanks, basically. I, as a more I meditate on what he wants me to meditate on, the more I, he gives me. I'm sure you've been asked this a thousand times but uh, or more. A retired firefighter from Orlando, Florida, you must ask yourself repeatedly, you know, why me, Lord? Well, why yeah. you, Mark? Why yeah. you, of, of all the seven billion souls on this planet, why yeah. Mark Taylor? Yeah, brother, I, if I knew the answer to that question, <laughs> you know, I have asked the Lord, you know, it's, it's like, Lord, I am, I'm nobody. I mean, I am just, I am literally, I have, I have never been to Bible college. I've never been to theolo- uh, theology school or whatever you want to call it, seminary school. I don't have a degree of any kind hanging on my wall. I am simply a everyday, normal, common person that has yielded himself over to the Lord Jesus Christ to use in whatever capacity he wants to use me in. And it all start. well, I got saved back when I was eight years old. And, but I mean, when I had that experience, when the Lord visited me right after I retired, a month after I retired, that visitation I had, that rocked me, man, like nothing I've ever been through. And I mean, it just, it changed, put me on a trajectory course of, of destiny, basically. And but why did God choose me? I don't have a clue because again, like you said, there are 7 billion other people out there who are just everyday, normal, common people. He could have chose any one of them. It, uh, if I remember um, seeing on YouTube, there was uh, a pastor from Australia um, who was also talking about uh, prophecies or messages he had received from the Lord. He was also talking about Trump being president. Do you, do you, I, I can't remember his name. Do you remember? Do you recall? No, I know who you're talking about. I don't know the gentleman's name, though. Yeah, he's since passed away, but um, and his videos were on YouTube. He was talking about Trump. So, I mean, there is there are there there is sort of corroborating, I don't know, prophetic uh, wisdom or whatever you want to call it out there. Sure. What other changes? What other world-altering changes do you see in the U.S. government uh, coming on on the horizon, Mark? Well, I think the midterms. I think you're going to see the biggest shakeup in the midterms, uh, probably in U.S. history. Uh, for several reasons. Um, you know, one of the things that the Lord showed me right after Donald, right before Donald Trump, right before the election, God started dealing with me a couple of weeks. And then uh, I released it on an interview I did the day after the election, was that you're going to see military-style tribunals break out because it's going to take that because the length, the width, the, the depth of this corruption is so great. It's going to take these military-style tribunals for these treasonous acts that they've committed in order to handle all of this. So that's one of the things that you're going to see happen. But God's going to root out all of this corruption. This is not going to stop. I tell people, you need to just put your seatbelt on, get ready. This is going to be a long ride, because this stuff's going to be going on for years, basically, because God's not going to stop exposing it. He's going to clean house. And when you got to remember, this is like remodeling a house. When you remodel a house, there's a demolition phase, and it can get nasty, it can get dirty, it can even get dangerous sometimes. And that's the kind of the phase we're in right now. But that's what it's going to take in order to rebuild it. Yeah, some have uh, suggested, you know, when once God moves in, uh, the, the, in the early going, He's simply moving furniture around. But as you say, it's going to get, yeah. it's going to get pretty, uh, yeah. pretty wild. Yeah. Uh, but, but rest assured, He is in charge. He's still on the throne, and America will prosper like never before. Not saying we're not going to have some issues along the way, because we will. But America will prosper like never before, because America is going to be used as the hub, just like D-Day, like Britain was the hub for the D-Day launch. America will be the hub by which the end-time harvest of souls will be launched. 
it, I, I, I know I've mentioned Rabbi Jonathan Kahn a number of times, but he's such a, a tremendous, um, you know, mind and, and, and spirit, and he's been on the program a number of times, and he, he has often drawn the comparison between the United States and ancient Israel, ancient Israel, particularly, you know, the northern kingdom of Israel under God's judgment when they turned away from God, drawing the comparison with the United States. Uh, is this merely sort of a window of opportunity to turn things around uh, or uh, sort of a respite um, from God's judgment? Or is Trump, in fact, going to going to reverse all of this and God's judgment against the United States? Well, it's not so much Trump reversing it as it is the people. And what, what people have to understand is that, you know, that Second uh, Chronicles 7.14 says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and repent, basically— it's my people. That's not the, the person on the street that's not a Christian. He's talking about God's people. And what we had happen on November 8th was because the army of God, those spiritually mature, because you've got to understand something. The reason America's in the mess that it's in is because the church has not done its job. And it's the army of God, the spiritually mature, those who don't even go to church, the remnant, basically, rose up and repented on behalf of the country and the land, the people in the land. God heard the prayers and answered the prayers. And that's why, you know, if, if God was going to truly judge America, he would have allowed Hillary Clinton as the president. That's why I've been saying that God has shown me all along it's the systems that are under judgment. It's the leadership that's under judgment. It's the church that's under judgment. So that, that's why America will, will prosper like never before. It's going to be used as the end-time harvest hub, basically. Mark, thank you so much for this. Where can people uh, order the book? They can go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble, either one. And your website again, quickly? Swordrescue.com. Swordrescue.com, the Trump prophecies. Mark, thank you so much. A delight meeting you. Uh, thank you. It was an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. Mark Taylor. When we come back, Encounter in the Desert, Kevin Randall, the case for alien contact at Socorro, New Mexico. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV camper taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate in your cabin in the woods. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Hello to all of you listening in on our flagship station, the all-powerful Zoomer Radio, 50,000 watts, a clear channel of truth, peace, and love, uh, blasting across the continent uh, from the Great White North. Thank you to all of you listening in on one of our affiliate stations across North America, the podcast, of course. Check it out at TalkZone.com. Uh, those of you who take the show wherever you go on, uh, well, there are two terrific radio apps, the Zoomer radio app and the Conspiracy Show radio app, both free downloads, by the way. The, um, the, uh, the live YouTube stream, Check it out at The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Don't forget to hit the subscription button. Uh, however, and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Um, just a quick 
note that I think you'll be um, interested in knowing. And that is I've been talking the last several weeks about a new podcast that I am about to launch. It does launch on Monday, December the 4th, three episodes every week. Now, it's, it's called Conspiracy Unlimited. Now, here's the thing. If you go looking for it right now, it's up on iTunes, but it hasn't been approved by iTunes yet. Um, so I would say by tomorrow night, you should be able to find it. And by that point, I will have linked up my website, conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com, will point you to that podcast. All right, so be patient. I would say by late tomorrow night, you'll be able to log on to conspiracypodcast.com, find the podcasts. There'll be three of them waiting for you. There'll be actually four. There'll be a little welcome podcast, a little two minutes welcoming you to Conspiracy Unlimited, and then three brand new episodes and look for three brand new episodes every week that will be uploaded every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And what I urge you to do is subscribe now for free. At some point in the future, we may charge a, a, a small subscription f- a fee, but I, I'm, I'm really hoping you'll get on board now and support Conspiracy Unlimited, my brand new podcast. Of course, the, uh, the podcast for The Conspiracy Show, still available. Nothing's changing. Still doing the weekly radio show, which will also be available as a podcast. So it's just, you know what? Here's the thing. There's too much going on in the world to be able to cover it all doing two hours a week. And I am so grateful to have this opportunity at Zoomer Radio. Uh, But I need more time. (laughs) So that's what the podcast is all about. Hope you'll uh, check it out. ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Not quite ready yet. Give it 24 hours and it will be up and running. All right. Uh, young Sebastian is here, sitting in for uh, Ian, my technical producer, who is in Los Angeles recording an album. Very excited about that for Ian. I hope you'll come back and remember us. Of course, uh, in studio, my story producer, Albert Vinzel, and uh, our YouTube, our live YouTube stream producer and feature producer, Ryan White, also with us. The UFO landing at Socorro has uh, been wrapped in controversy almost from the moment that police officer Lonnie Zamora, Zamora, uh, watched a craft descend and land. Zamora saw alien beings near the craft and a symbol on its side, but he was told that he shouldn't mention either. It's all documented in Encounter in the Desert, which reveals for the first time exactly what Zamora saw in that arroyo back in 1964 and what an examination of the landing revealed to investigators. Now, Socorro wasn't a standalone case. Other sightings, some of them nearly as spectacular as Zamora's were reported at the time. A study of the Air Force investigation of this case reveals an effort at first to learn the truth that mutated or that uh, mutated into a clever attempt to hide the information from the public. Encounter in the Desert reveals all this and much more. Kevin Randall is a retired Army lieutenant colonel who served as a helicopter pilot in Vietnam and an intelligence officer in Iraq. He studied anthropology and journalism at the University of Iowa and holds advanced degrees from the American Military University and California Coast University. He's been studying UFOs for 50 years. He's published dozens of books about the subject, including Crash, 
When UFOs Fall from the Sky, he hosts a radio show on the X-Zone Broadcast Network and a blog, A Different Perspective. He's appeared on dozens of television and radio shows, including The Today Show and Good Morning America. Wow, what a pleasure to welcome Kevin Randall to The Conspiracy Show. Kevin, how are you? I'm fine, but I'm not sure I want to be linked to The Today Show. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Well, yeah, there's a, a lot of... Uh, a lot of things going on in the MSM, and uh, that's all right. We're not going to hold that against you. You know what? You you were able to sort of break through that glass ceiling and get the word out on the MSM. So however you chose to use the Today Show, good for you. But we're delighted to have you here, Kevin. Well, I'm glad to be here. Now, interesting. I mean, when did you – I mean, you were aware of – the um, the UFO incident at Socorro, New Mexico, for a long time, obviously, but when did it all start to um, impact you? I mean, when you started to sort of put the the pieces together. Well, part of it was investigating the Roswell case, and we were over on the plains of San Agustin. I say we, Don Schmidt and I, and of course we were in Socorro, so we asked a few questions around there. So there's always kind of an interest there. But on my radio program, I had on Ben Moss and Tony Angiola. <clears throat> wow, I, I suddenly have a frog in my throat. I don't believe this. <laughs> anyway, excuse me. Anyway, they had said a couple of things on the program that sparked my attention. I never got good answers for it. One of them was they, that they said that there were three witnesses who'd called into the police prior to Zamora seeing the thing land out in, out in the outskirts of town. And I said, did you see the police log? And they never answered the question. Hmm. And I'm not sure why we never got an answer to the question. But that got my interest. And they said uh, a couple of other things like that that I, I found kind of provocative. <clears throat> so I looked at, um, I got back and looked at the Air Force file, the whole Air Force file. And in it, going through it, <clears throat> I found a report from a fellow named Captain Richard Holder. He was an Army officer who had... Uh, <clears throat> Well, I don't know what's going on here. Do you want to get some water? Do you have some water nearby? Yeah, I got, th- I got that. Wow. This has never happened to me before. I'm so embarrassed, I'm turning bright red. No, 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 no. No. Anyway, um, Captain Richard Holder was the upper-age commander at the uh, White Sands uh, Missile Range, White Sands Proving Grounds. And uh, his duty station, White Sands is really based down near Alamogordo, quite a, far, quite a ways from Socorro. But his duty station was much closer to Socorro, so he lived in Socorro. And within an hour, hour and 20 minutes of the landing, he was called in um, either by the FBI or his uh, executive officer alerted him. But he went into the Socorro police station, so he's talking to Lonnie Flora. Right. The whole point of this is that he wrote a short report that very night uh, within hours of the landing, and in this report, it said that three people had called into the police station and uh, reported uh, either a blue flame in the sky or an object in the sky. That verifies what, what Ben Moss and Tony Angiola had said. It wasn't in the police ro- logs, but it was in this official report that Holder had written. No names are attached to it because the police dispatcher didn't bother to write down their names. I'm thinking, you know, if I was investigating this case in 1964, one of the things I would have said... Um, because we knew the path that the thing flew in and flew out of, I would have gone to the area where the uh, thing overflew 
and knocked on doors until I found some people who would witness the thing. We could get some names attached to that and some better description. Sure. Uh, that never happened. I don't understand why. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Carl and Jim Lorenzen, who were the uh, leaders of the Aerophenomena Research Organization out of Tucson, Arizona, who actually had one time lived in Alamogordo, were there within tw- 48 hours. This would be something that I would have thought they would have done, but they didn't. Um, Hynek was there, J. Allen Hynek, who was the Air Force consultant of Blue Book. He mm. was there within days. He didn't bother with it. The official Air Force investigator, uh, Sergeant David Moody, he didn't bother. Uh, Ray Stanford was there from NICAP. He didn't bother. I mean, all these people were there investigating this thing, and nobody bothered to find these other witnesses, which I think would be very important. We have um, Zamora's story, and it was taken down, again, literally within hours of the sighting uh, by, by Holder and the FBI agent, a guy named Arthur Burns. So we have good records of that. And then we have the other investigations that were done. There was um, a report in the April Bulletin by the Lorenzans. They were there within 48 hours, so we've got a good record there. Uh, we've got Hynek's report. We've got a report from a guy named um, Connor, who was a allegedly, <laughs> I say allegedly, um, the public affairs officer at Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque. He had driven, actually, Hynek down to Socorro. Uh, he's, he's got a report in there. Um, he had an additional duty as the base UFO officer, which I thought was kind of strange, but so we've got his report. So there's all kinds of documentation leading up to this. So we've got very good documentation of what happened right. within literally hours of the thing landing. Right. When you talk to, uh, to Ben Moss and Tony Angiola, they, they also interviewed, uh, I believe at the time it was the only living person who had investigated the case, and that was a gentleman by the name of Ray Stanford. Stanford. Stanford, yes, Stanford, yes. I'm sorry. Yeah. Tell me, tell me about Ray Stanford. Well, I actually I, I interviewed him as well, um, but he uh, he was a member of the aerial phenomena. I'm sorry, uh, NICAP, National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, the Washington D.C. group under under um, Donald Kehoe. But he was out there. Uh, he talked to Zamora. He talked to Sam Chavez, who was Zamora's pal. And when Zamora, after the the thing had taken off, Zamora called the police station and asked for Sanford. I'm sorry, uh, for Chavez to come out. Chavez was a state policeman. And so he interviewed all those people. He talked to the radio um, a reporter who interviewed them as well. He talked to, um, well, he was there with the radio reporter in a restaurant, going to have dinner, and these two older women came up and said they had seen the object or heard the object. Audio witnesses is what Stanford calls them. And, but he, never, he didn't get the names, and he didn't follow up on it. And when I talked to him, I said, well, do you have the names in your file? He said, well, they'd be dead by now. They were middle-aged at the time. And I'm thinking, but it would tell me where they lived in Socorro. Right, right. And, and I might be able to find somebody in Socorro. They would have family. They would have neighbors and yes, friends that they would have talked to. Precisely. Kevin, hold on. We're going to take a time out. Kevin Randall, author of Crash, Where UFOs Fall from the Sky. His new one is Encounter in the Desert, the case for alien contact at Socorro. This is a uh, magnificent, well-documented case from New Mexico. Police officer Lonnie Zamora watched a craft descend and land. He saw alien beings near the craft and a symbol on its side. We'll discuss further on the other side with Kevin Randall. Stay with us on The Conspiracy Show. 
In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Kevin Randall is with us. Encounter in the Desert, the case for alien contact with Socorro. You know, Kevin, um, we, we, often, we always talk about Roswell and, and to a lesser extent maybe the Aztec UFO incident. But as you point out, uh, Socorro is one of the best uh, examples in, in, in Project Blue Book, but still it, it flies under the radar, no pun intended. Um, why is that, do you suppose? Because things like Roswell have the possibility of providing all the evidence you'd need to prove alien visitation. With Socorro, you have an observation by a police officer. You have some landing traces, which are interesting in and of themselves. You have um, official investigation. You have a lot of things going on with Socorro. But when you get down to it, you have Lonnie Zamora as the main observer, you have indications of other witnesses who are lost to, uh, I guess, the fog of time. So it doesn't have the same robust nature of something like Roswell, although Roswell has kind of lost his robustness in recent years. I did a book just last year called Roswell in the 21st Century, looking at it, attempted to look at it in a dispassionate way to see where we stood on it, and found that a lot of what we believed about Roswell turned out not to be true, and a lot of the people who'd come forward or had been found to talk about the case really were basically making up their stories, and that hurt the whole entire case. With Socorro, you don't have a lot of places to go to talk to people. You don't have a lot of witnesses. Uh, you can look at the pictures of the landing traces. You can look at the uh, analysis of the soil samples and the vegetation that were taken and that sort of thing, but when you get down to it, you don't have the same robust nature. To, to kind of understand Socorro, you, be, you have to begin looking at what was going on around Socorro at the time, which is what, one of the things I did. Uh, other, other cases that affect the, uh, the Socorro case, there was one in La Madera in uh, northern New Mexico, took place within, I think, 24 hours. Of, of the Socorro landing, and you have the same sort of thing. The craft on the ground, it lifts off in a flame, and it leaves um, burns on the ground, which is suggestive of what happened at Socorro. Hynek, who was in Socorro, knew about the case, and he asked permission to go investigate it, and the Air Force said no. I'm thinking, I'm a consultant here. I'm a civilian. I'm going to talk to these people about it, but he didn't do that. The official Air Force investigator didn't do it. But that whole case came about and was reported by the witness prior to the information getting about, out about the Socorro case. So he didn't know about Socorro when he reported. So I find that interesting. There were some other sightings that took place uh, south of Socorro, basically on the White Sands Missile Range, looking off toward the west over the mountains there. 
that's are suggestive of the object that uh, Zamora had seen. So you put all of that together, and it becomes a little bit more of a robust sighting. But nobody had really done that to this point. Everybody kind of talked about Socorro, and then they would go off and, and leave it. They didn't talk about what was going on around it at the time, and I thought that was important to look at as well. Certainly. Well, for those not familiar intimately with the Socorro case, tell us about Lonnie Zamora and what he saw on uh, that night in 1964. You mean there were people that don't know this story? <laughs> Hard to believe, but yes. Uh, according, according to everything in the files, Zamora was chasing a speeder in in uh, in Socorro, and he heard a roar off in the distance, and he thought a dynamite check that was on the edge of town had blown up. So he broke off the pursuit of the speeder, and he went over in that direction and came up over a, ho- a hill. And looking down in an arroyo, he saw what he thought was an under overturned car, undertuned car, for crying out loud, overturned car, and he drove down close to it, got out of the police car and walked even down closer to it, got fairly close to it, and noticed two, and he used a, a various terms, I think he said people once, according to one of the transcripts in the Blue Book files, but he mostly called them things, um, talked about them being the size of uh, children or small adults, and that when one of them looked at him and saw him there, seemed startled, and they both disappeared around behind the landed craft, the craft had sat down, landed, by the time he got there, there was a sound like a vault door closing, and then the thing, there was a roar, and the thing lifted off, drifted horizontally for a while, and then shot up into the sky. He called uh, Sam Chavez right away, and Chavez there was there in a couple of minutes. And I, I make that distinction because it's important, because one of the s- suggestions that it was some kind of a hot air balloon that, that we were experimenting with, although there's no evidence of that, and the point is, it wouldn't have disappeared in the sky before Chavez got there. He would have seen it, too, but he didn't. Uh, he, was, he went back to the police station, and within, at least within an hour, probably less, uh, Burns and Holder, the Air Force, uh, the Army officer and the FBI guy, were there basically interrogating him and talking to him about it, uh, to, to what he'd seen, talked about uh, the symbol he'd seen on it, Holder suggested to him, not in a way to suppress the information, but suggested that maybe we they not release what that thing looked like precisely, because that way, if other people had seen it and described the symbol, they would be able to eliminate right, the, right. the copycat. Burns suggested to him that maybe he didn't want, wouldn't want to talk about the alien creature. Not, I say alien, that's my word. Right. Um, Zomora never talked about him being alien creatures or extraterrestrials, but the beings that he saw down there... Uh, Burns suggested maybe he didn't want to talk about that because it would open him up to ridicule by other people in the press. And uh, that's kind of what he did. So eventually it came about that he really didn't see anything but white coveralls down below uh, by the craft. Although it, it's clear from the descriptions in the Project Blue Book files and what he said that they weren't more, it was more than just cover, coveralls. But he didn't see a lot of detail uh, about the beings. The thing was on the ground for uh, a couple of minutes at the most. And once it left it off, uh, he went down to see it. Chavez showed up. He w- went down. They found a, an area, a bush that was kind of still smoking. And Chavez said that when he touched the bush, it wasn't hot. It was smoking, but it it wasn't hot. And only half of it had been burned, which they found weird. And some of the 
vegetation around the landing site had been burned, and there were four distinct impressions on the ground, which were, according to the analysis made by the Air Force and the various investigators, were pressed into the earth as opposed to excavated. So something heavy had sat down there and pressed itself into the earth. Uh, and that and that becomes important. Philip Class uh, said that you know there was an asymmetrical landing gear, and he put knitting needles through a Brillo pad on a map of the landing gear things and uh, showed how asymmetrical it was. But when you correct it for the terrain and make a couple of other measure, measurements, what you find out is the um, flame was in the center of it, and the landing gear were symmetrical but it was the terrain that made it look like they were asymmetrical. So, right, I mean, right. what you would expect, although I'm not sure that we can say that an alien race, if they're landing a craft on in New Mexico, would necessarily be as anal about the uh, symmetry of the landing gear as we might be. You would expect them to be because it makes it more stable, but we don't know what the aesthetics of an alien race would be. What do we know about Lonnie Zamora? Zani Zamora was a steady police officer who apparently handed out tickets, speeding tickets to uh, the students, both high school and the ones at the uh, mining institute there. So they didn't care for him, but he was fuzz in the 1960s. Uh, he had been, uh, a guy, I think, a soldier in, I say a thing, I, I don't know whether he was a soldier or Marine, I think he was a soldier in Korea, and he stayed with the New Mexico National Guard up to his retirement. He stayed on as a police officer some 15 years after this event and then eventually took another city job until he retired. Uh, Heineck paid him kind of a left-handed compliment. In one of the reports said that, well, he didn't think that Lonnie Zamora was involved in a hoax because he wasn't astute enough to have perpetrated a hoax <laughs> on his own. That is a backhanded compliment. Yeah, yeah. Um, which attests to his honesty. I, I couldn't find anything that would suggest that he wasn't trustworthy, that he wasn't a good policeman. The most recent nonsense to come out is, well, he drank beer, and people saw him drinking beer in the tavern. I'm thinking, oh, my God, he drank beer. Uh, nothing, nothing in any of the reports suggests he had been drinking before duty on April 24th when the thing landed during duty or afterwards and we've got two um, investigators Holden and Burns and Burns is an FBI guy so this is kind of his meat and potatoes they were well, on the scene awfully quick don't you think well he lived in he lived in uh, Socorro oh he did okay that explains that all right yeah as did Holder so they lived in Socorro they got there very very quickly as you say but there's nothing in any of the reports to suggest any alcohol involved at all and yet we you know, were supposed to and even if he became a, a the town drunk in the years after this thing it would be relevant to the sighting of april of, of 1964 because there's no evidence that he was that prior to that and no evidence that he was the town drunk at any point i i, I don't understand the need to kind of bring this thing up um that he that he would he would periodically be seen in a bar or a tavern having a beer or two gee whiz uh you know, I, I can't think of many people I know who haven't been in a tavern and had a beer or two once in a while. So. Precisely. Well, I mean, didn't this cause a bit of a media firestorm when it when it uh, first came out? And oh, was was absolutely. Zamora interviewed by the national media? Oh, absolutely. There was there were any number of reports in the newspapers 
that he had done, uh, attempting it. He was very reluctant to talk after a few days of this because he could see some of the, the way he was being treated by the, uh, by the media, and other police officers wouldn't have anything to do with the media because, because of that. Uh, Walter Cronkite reported it on his CBS Evening News program, and I remember seeing that as a kid. Uh, and, of course, that dates me, but you already said I'd been studying <laughs> UFOs for 50 years, and I was in Vietnam, so that pretty well ages me right there. They've got you pegged now. Absolutely. Um, so, it, yeah, it was, it was. you can go to your local newspaper and probably find a story or two about Lonnie Zamora and what was going on in New Mexico after that sighting took place. So, yes, it was a, it was a big story um, in, in 1964. And, and it kind of led to, and I, I say kind of because this was a period when there were lots of good UFO stories going on and eventually led to congressional investigations and eventually kind of inspired the Air Force to really nail down a university to study UFOs to end the Air Force investigation, which was the mission of it was end the Air Force investigation, but it ended up in doing all that sort of thing, and so you have this period at the end of the 1960s where there was an awful lot of interest in UFOs from an awful lot of people in an awful lot of different arenas. When did um, Samora start to talk uh, more openly about the symbol that he saw on this craft? I'm not sure that he really talked openly about it, and I say that because of, of what Burns had said to him and that sort of thing. But what happened was, after the object disappeared, I mean, like the moment it was out of sight, he drew on a scrap of paper a symbol. Right. And then later on that night, he drew the symbol for Holder. He signed both of those with his name, Lonnie Zamora, so we know pretty much what he was drawing. That symbol appears in a number of different reports in the Project Blue Book files. And um, a fellow named Rick Baca, who was a 14-year-old boy in 1964, um, drew what the object looked like based on Zamora's descriptions of it. His father, Baca's father, was, I think, a um, paralegal in the city attorney's office in Socorro. And Zamora had gone to that, um, into the office to see if he was in any, any kind of trouble. He wanted to make sure he was in any kind of trouble, and he described exactly what he'd seen. And Baca Sr. described that to Baca Jr., and he made an illustration of it. And they took it back in to show Lonnie Zamora, and Zamora said, yeah, that's pretty much what I saw. But then, under his guidance, they drew the symbol on it as well. And that, a picture like that, a pic, that picture actually appears in the April 1964 version of uh, the April Bulletin. And I think, I think you can find those online now. So you get to the 1964 April Bulletin, and you'll see uh, Baca's um, illustration with the symbol on it. Kevin, so, i got to jump in here. We're, uh, we're going to step away for a moment. You get yourself a glass of water. You're sounding great. Not to worry. We'll come back more on Encounter in the Desert. Kevin Randall, a giant in ufology on this program. Don't you dare go away. Stay with us. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740.
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Kevin Randall is with us. Encounter in the Desert, the case for alien contact at Socorro. Socorro, New Mexico, 1964. Police officer Lonnie Zamaro, eyewitness to uh, an incredible event. And um, I, w- I want to go back to the uh, the symbol. And um, you described or you explained where we can see it. But how would you describe it? And does it bear any resemblance, for example, to the symbols that a young Jesse Marcel Jr. Uh, reported seeing on that what appeared to be sort of an eye beam back uh, in 1947? Quick answer, no. There's no resemblance to the symbols that uh, Jesse Marcel saw. And nothing that his father saw either. It's, uh, I've, I've always kind of described it as an arc with a V underneath it, with a line straight down to the, from the apex of the V and then a horizontal line across the bottom. Sort of a arrowhead type thing with an arc over it. I always called it the umbrella symbol just because it was a simple way to describe it. The controversy came out in, uh, about that because, according to um, some of the newspaper reports, the symbol is reported as an inverted V with three lines through it. That's the symbol that supposedly they made up to kind of weed out the uh, copycats. And so you get both symbols being reported, although the newspapers talk about the inverted V, and it's not until a couple of weeks later you begin to see the, the proper symbol involved in that. Ray Stanford, interestingly, in his uh, first report, said that if you saw the umbrella symbol, that was the real symbol, and the inverted V with the three lines through it was the fake symbol. But when you get to his book, uh, some ten years later, he's got it reversed. Now it's the inverted V is the real symbol, and the umbrella symbol is not the real one. If you look at the documentation, Zamora drew the symbol twice, signed both of them as the umbrella symbol. I mean, that to me is the... Uh, the epitome of, of evidence there. The guy signed the symbols, and there was no reason for them to fake it in the files because they didn't expect anybody to see them. Right, you right. Know, these were the Air Force files. There's a number of other reports in the uh, files, the Blue Book files, and it's the umbrella symbol almost universally throughout it. The lone exception is a letter written, I think it's September 7, 1964, by Jalen Hynek, and he's got an inverted V, and he's got a line above the apex of the V and two lines between the legs of the V. Um, and I think it's just Heineck was confused by the discussions from the newspapers and all of that. There's another document that I have where I think uh, Heineck was dic- dictating his impressions or what he'd seen to uh, Zenny, Jenny Zeidman. And he's, he makes a mention of the inverted V with the three lines through it from the newspapers, but he's also got the umbrella symbol in there as the real symbol. And I think he just got got confused later on about what the symbol really looked like. Um, so I think I think it's pretty well established, and I know Ben Moss and Tony Angiola and Ray Stanford don't agree with me on this, but I think the evidence is pretty clear that the symbol he actually saw is, is the uh, umbrella's 
symbol. There's almost nothing in the logos for American corporations that resemble it. I mean, precisely. There's a uh, what international paper I think's got something that looks sort of like it. But I say sort of. It's not a, an exact match, so it's very confusing in that respect as well. Has any other similar symbol ever shown up in either Blue Book or uh, or elsewhere? I have not. I have not found anything. I know that um, at one point, Bud Hopkins was collecting symbols that had been seen by his abductees, and um, Carol Rainey, who was his ex-wife and mm. was doing some work with it, had asked me some stuff about that at one point. So I went back and tried to find as many examples of symbology as I could that had been mentioned throughout the uh, uh, history of UFOs, including the papers found by... Um, uh, a guy named Reeves, and I can't remember. His tr- I keep wanting to say George Reeves, and that's not right. That's it's, Superman. That's Superman. <laughs> Who knows? The guy, the guy from Brooksville, Florida. Uh, his last name is Reeves, and he's not. He's not uh, Steve Reeves either. Who is Hercules, by the way? <laughs> um, but but he had a bunch of symbols on his paper um, that the Air Force had. Um, there's uh, other symbols. The Kecksburg craft had symbols around the bottom, right, that sort right. of thing. But I haven't ever found anything that matched that. Uh, so, you know, that's that's kind of where we are on that. So, and and, and I, I think the skeptics have made a good point. You know, we don't have a lot of UFO sightings where there's symbols painted on the side. I mean, we we look at an airplane and there's all kinds of crap painted on the sides of airplanes. Right. It's not like we have an Audubon field guide. Yeah. Um, uh, Hold on, Kevin. This was a short segment. We'll come back and uh, discuss further. Encounter in the Desert. Kevin Randall, my guest. Stay with us. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. On Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Before I get back to my conversation with Kevin Randall, author of Encounter in the Desert, The Case for Alien Contact at Socorro, let's check in with story producer Albert Vinzel. What's coming up next week on the program, Albert? We have Jeff Worster from the Center for Deep Political Research, and he's an expert on JFK. JFK versus the deep state. Trump should be listening to this one. All right. And who do we have in the second hour? Our, our regular uh, pundit on the paranormal, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Ah, yes, Rosemary. And uh, I, we're going to talk about angels for the full hour. All the various orders of angels, Rosemary Ellen Guiley and uh, Jeff Worster. All right. Um, Kevin, it's, you know, it's no secret that, that Project Blue Book was kind of a, a dog and pony show to, 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 to convince people that the Air Force was sort of taking... Uh, these UFO sightings seriously, but they weren't. Although, J. Allen Hynek, you know, started off as um, a bit of a debunker, but kind of turned around. What role did Socorro and that sighting um, serve in terms of his conversion? And did, what did he say later in life about the, the Socorro episode? Later in life, he became uh, an advocate for the extraterrestrial explanation for Socorro. I think that 
about the time he got to Socorro, he was beginning to worry about um, the information and the, the evidence that he was seeing. Um, as you say, he started out as a debunker, he, well, or a scientist who didn't think there was anything to this, and he began to see that there was much more to the UFO phenomenon that that might be of scientific value. Not necessarily because it was uh, extraterrestrial or alien in nature, but there was things to be learned. And I think that was one of the things we all need to look at as well, that even if it's not alien visitation, there's something going on, whether it's some kind of psychological phenomenon that we don't fully understand or some kind of natural phenomenon we don't fully understand. But there are things that we could learn about it, uh, learn about humanity just by studying the reaction to um, UFO sightings and the belief in UFOs and that sort of thing, which is not to say that there, it, it may not be extraterrestrial in nature, but, but certainly we haven't been able to get our hands on the precise evidence. And I think that you know, that all comes down to what people will accept for evidence. Some people have a much lower threshold than, than others. I'd like to see multiple chains of evidence, and that includes the testimony. Testimony is of, of, of a valuable resource when you're looking at these sorts of things, but something with physical evidence. And here at Socorro, we have that sort of physical evidence. And I think when, when, when Hynek looked at that sort of thing, and later on as he looked at some other cases that were uh, bubbling to the surface at the time, including the uh, sightings that took place in Michigan a couple of years later and that sort of thing, he began to see that there was much more to the UFO phenomenon than um, he had originally thought, and it wasn't just the purview of a bunch of uh, drunks or crazy people or uh, people having hallucinations, but there was something more uh, important there, and it was it looked to him as if it was something uh, physical in nature. I, I asked you earlier about why Socorro was overshadowed by Roswell, and as you point out, I, and an argument, a very strong argument could be made, I think, that Socorro is a far more documented case than is Roswell. And you talk about the physical evidence. Let's talk about the the landing traces. And, and I'd like I'd be very keen to know what happened to that uh, physical evidence. One of the first things that they did, and I think it was Holder ordered, they had a bunch of MPs come up from uh, White Sands, uh, yeah, White Sands, and they cordoned off the area, so to speak, and they put rocks around the landing traces, the um, the <clears throat> landing gear imprints, and those were photographs. So, I mean, uh, in 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 the book, there's photographs that are from the Air Force files of those landing traces, and they're very clear to be seen. And they were pressed into the ground as opposed to excavated, which means something heavy sat there. There was also uh, a couple of circular. Um, impressions in the ground would would have been behind the object when it sat there, and the impression is that that was like a ladder that came out of a hatch, and it was adjusted a couple of times. So you've got an, a number of uh, circular footprints uh, there, and then there were some light footprints as well that suggested that somebody had crawled up into the craft when it took off. You've got the the bush that was partially burned, and they took samples from that, but. They found no evidence of any petrochemicals or accelerants on there, which would have suggested, you know, how the bush was set on fire. They found no evidence of that, so it was a, subjected to a heat source that didn't leave any kind of residue behind. They checked for radiation and didn't find anything like that. They um, took soil samples, and I, 
I was kind of curious because in the file it said that Holder had taken a bunch of samples that night. And I was wondering what happened to them. And as I was doing research for the book, that was one of the questions I had. What happened to Holder's soil samples? And I came across a report that said uh, once Heineck got there, he gave all that material to to Heineck. So Heineck had the soil samples. They they checked that. Uh, Stanford had soil samples that he took that were checked that really didn't uh, reveal anything. Stanford also said that Zamora pointed out a rock to him that had some metal scrapings on it. Right. And... Um, nobody else seemed interested in it. So while they <laughs> no one were, seemed interested. Yeah, they just sort of ignored that, and they went off to do this this radio interview. And Stanford went with him. He said the minute the re- the radio interview was over, he rushed back to the scene, found the rock, photographed it on its uh, where it was, so you know he could put it back, and then he uh, he collected it and took it took it back to um, his home in Phoenix. Uh, then he did a dumb thing, which was he um, was showing it to his neighbor outside, and he knocked off some of the bigger pieces of the metallic debris that was left behind. And he said they spent a lot of time going over the area with a magnifying glass and trying to find it, but they couldn't. But there were still some small samples left behind. Eventually, they went to Washington, D.C. with those, uh, and... Uh, Dick Hall arranged for them to be uh, examined at uh, the Goddard Center in uh, uh, in Virginia, right close by. But um, and then there then there becomes some controversy because, according to the official report, there was nothing extraordinary about these metallic samples, and they were almost all gone. I think Ray still has the rock, and from what he said, there's still some little samples on it, and they might be able to still be able to analyze it given today's technology, something they couldn't have done 20 years ago. But the official report, and that appears in the NICAP uh, newspaper, was that there wasn't really anything extraordinary about the metal. I've always been of the opinion, the one thing that's always frightened me is we get a piece, a, a real piece of a flying saucer, I mean, a real piece of a flying saucer, take it in to have it analyzed, and they say, yeah, it's aluminum. There's nothing to distinguish it from terrestrially based metals. Um, but according to Ray, he was told by the scientist who did the investigation, and this is all kind of covered in the book, um, that it was something extraordinary. And then later on when the official report came out, they said, no, it wasn't. And the scientist suddenly wouldn't take his phone calls and was uh, transferred somewhere else. So hmm. there's a little bit of controversy about that. And I, Ray Stanford and D- Dick Hall kind of fought this thing out in... Um, the pages of the MUFON Journal, uh, I think in the 1970s, when when Ray had uh, published his book. So, uh, you know, that stuff can be found. And, and, and I made copious footnotes throughout the book, and so that everybody who wanted to follow up on where the information came from would be able to do so um, by by reading all of that sort of thing and say, well, it's the MUFON Journal number, which, whatever it is. Right and the date and the page number, so you could follow up on it pretty easily. One of the the other things that, that um, you point out in the book, uh, and that is the number of other cases, this is what we don't hear about, are the number of cases involving sightings of what appear to be alien beings. Often they're dismissed as, well, this person had some psychological disorder and so forth. But you really bring this to the fore, that there were a number of celebrated uh, cases, whether we're talking about um, 
um, was it Flatwoods, West Virginia, and Kelly Hopkins, Kentucky, that case back in was it the early 1950s. But there are others. One of the things that had been sort of a myth in the Project Blue Book is there's only one case involving alien creature, creatures or sightings of beings around the craft that was labeled unidentified was the um, uh, Zamora sighting. But there are actually two others that I was able to find. There might be more, and I haven't found them, but there was two others where it's not written off as a psychological problem of, of, of the person. And, and you look at Kelly Hopkinsville, which was the little creatures that were kind of assaulting the farmhouse, and the people inside panicked and were firing at the creatures and knocking them down, and they'd get up and run off and that sort of thing. But the Air Force, you go over to the Air Force file, and, uh, you know, it's an important contrast. Here's Socorro, and it's treated seriously um, from, from the very beginning. I think it's because there were more than just the Air Force people involved. But you get to Kelly Hopkinsville, which happened um, in, I think, 1955, so it's, you know, nine years earlier. Uh, the, the attitude was, <clears throat> well, nobody reported to the Air Force, so it doesn't count. We haven't, we've got information only. But... There is Air Force report. I mean, there was people who reported it to the Air Force. There was an, uh, an officer on his annual tour, which means he was a reservist, and he was at um, in the area, and he heard it on the radio, and so he made an investigation and reported the stuff to to the Air Force. So there was an official investigation, but the Air Force claimed no, and, and that was the kind of thing they did. They stayed away from those sightings, and they made it look like you were uh, hallucinating if you saw anything like this. Kelly Hopkinsville, they wrote it off and said, well, it was probably a monkey that escaped from a, from a circus. Well, A, you are shooting at a monkey with a shotgun, and you've obviously hit it. There's going to be dead monkey. There's going to be evidence left behind. And there was no circus in town for them to uh, see it. They, they also said, well, they had been to a Holy Roller meeting that night, a revival-type thing, and they were all hopped up from, from that excitement. And so they hallucinated the whole thing, but that wasn't true either. So what you see is, in one respect, the Air Force, the military, the government, um, kind of ignoring these sightings or making light of them as best they can to keep, them, keep the people from uh, being interested in kind of putting down the curtain of ridicule. And you look at Socorro, and you contrast that, how it was taken seriously by practically everybody, Although the investigation was pretty ham-handed handed and uh, uh, lacking, but they were they treated they, they treated it seriously. And Hector Quintanilla, who was the uh, chief of Project Blue Book at the time, in his memoirs said this is one case he wanted to explain. He had uh, documentation that allowed him to look at top secret projects, and he went to Alamogordo. Holloman Air Force Base. He went to White Sands and to find out what they were doing at the time, see if it was some kind of black project. And I think that's what Zamora kind of thought it was a black project. I know Sam Chavez thought it was a black project, and they would get in trouble for talking about it. But Quintanilla could find nothing like that that would explain the sightings. And if he could have found it, he would have. He would. It would have been in the Project Blue Book files uh, at some point. But in his memoirs, written many many years later. He, he said he couldn't find anything, and he, he was convinced that the answer was in Lonnie Zamora's head, meaning that there was something that Lonnie Zamora may have seen or something that influenced him that would, would answer hmm. what he'd seen in that arroyo, but he couldn't get to it. So he had to um, write it off as unidentified, which he did, which you 
have to applaud him for that. But he also said that he, he knew that the UFO hobbyist would have a field day when he, when he uh, concluded that it was un- an unidentified case. You've been to Socorro. I mean, our, uh, your you know, colleague Don Schmidt has uh, interviewed a lot of the children of witnesses and so forth. He's in a race against the undertaker, obviously, to get to the truth. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing the same thing in Socorro. Are there still stories to be un, un, unearthed in Socorro relating to this incident, do you think? Well, Kevin? where we are now is simply that the primary people are gone. And so we're, we're left with the secondhand witnesses. And I, I'm just not a fan of that kind of uh, information because it can get so badly garbled in the translation. I know <clears throat> I talked to a fellow in Socorro named Paul Hart, and he said in the months before Lonnie Zai died that uh, he and Lonnie had gone out and toured the area, talked about the case a little bit, so he got a better idea of what Lonnie had to say. And I asked him, you know, well, what did Lonnie say? He said, well, it was between me and Lonnie, and I really don't want to talk about it. Um, Zamora's wife and his daughter are still around, and I think James Fox, who's doing a UFO project, has talked to them about it and seen some of the material that Lonnie had. And, and what Fox had told me was that... Uh, Lonnie had a uh, big box full of letters and documents that he'd received from people who had similar sightings and wanted to tell him what he'd seen, and also that there were some pictures, but when they went through the boxes, they couldn't find the pictures. Which, oh, dear. Uh, yeah, well, that's, that's ufology for you. Well, there you are. Kevin, uh, here's, here we have us lead to the pictures. Oh, sorry, they're gone. Too bad. Oh, dear. Kevin, listen, this, uh, we're out of time. This has been phenomenal. I hope you'll join me again. I would be delighted, but I didn't know you were coming apart. <laughs> I couldn't resist that. I Thank you. Why. Appreciate it. <laughs> uh, Encounter in the Desert, the case for alien contact at Socorro. Kevin Randall. Uh, my thanks to uh, young Sebastian Hearn, Albert Vinzel, and uh, young Ryan White. Back next week, Rosemary Ellen Guiley and Jeff Worster, the Deep State versus JFK. Hope you'll be along for the ride. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.